should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. You will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Melissa Kane, contributor to CBS San Francisco. I'm the host of the Cheat Sheet and your moderator for today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce today's very special guest, E.J. Dion Jr. Jr., it's important, uh, is a Washington Post columnist and author of Why the Right Went Wrong. Say that five times fast. Conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party. E.J. Dion writes about politics in a twice-weekly column on the Postpartisan blog. He's also a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He's a government professor at Georgetown University and a frequent commentator on politics for National Public Radio, ABC's This Week, and NBC's Meet the Press. Before joining the Post in 1990 as a political reporter, Mr. Dion spent 14 years at the New York Times, where he covered politics and reported from places like Albany, Washington, Paris, Rome, and Beirut. Mr. Dion grew up in Massachusetts, attended Harvard College, and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. See, I told you. Uh, (laughs) Please welcome E.J. Dion. Thank you so much uh, for that. It's a real joy to be here. I always like to remember the intro I once got when I get such a wonderful intro like that where the uh, introducer ended. And now for the latest dope from Washington, here is E.J. Dion. Um, And when I learned that Melissa was doing this, uh, I was reminded of a story some of you may be old enough to remember, uh, which is when John F. Kennedy uh, went to Paris Uh, He said, I am the man who accompanied uh, Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris. So I believe today I am deeply honored to be the man accompanying Melissa McCain to the uh, Commonwealth Club. So really, thank you so much uh, for uh, doing this. Um, The um, 
I, it's also, you know, in some ways, knowing her background and knowing uh, her work as a lawyer, I kind of want to listen to her. And it, it reminds me, the Commonwealth Club is too polite uh, for heckling, but I do like the old American tradition of heckling speakers, um, which is better, actually, than what you see online these days, because that's kind of anonymous, and people sort of don't really put themselves at risk, whereas hecklers put themselves at risk. And one of my favorites involves Al Smith when he was campaigning for governor, where uh, somebody um, in the back of the room stood up and said, tell us all you know, Al, it won't take long. <laughs> and Al Smith was a very clever guy, and he said, I'll tell us, I'll tell you all we both know, and it won't take longer. Um, and I'm always tempted to just sit down after that, let it sit there. I would also note that it's an honor to be in Nancy Pelosi's uh, congressional district, and uh, um, and uh, it's a story I tell in the book, which we can get back to, but uh, as some of you may remember, early on in the Obama administration, uh, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi was kind of uh, frustrated with the president uh, that he was always talking about what's wrong with Washington. And he wasn't really going after the Republicans. Pelosi was doing everything in her power to pass his program. And she actually went up to the president at one point and said, Mr. President, I don't mind it that you're throwing us under the bus. What I object to is you're backing the bus up and running us over again. Uh, and so there is Nancy Pelosi. I've always loved uh, that line. Over time, it got uh, through. There's a, uh, I cited in my book, David Axelrod, uh, kind of tried to broker an understanding between Speaker, then Speaker Pelosi and the president. And obviously, she has been one of his strongest supporters. I'm just going to say a few words so that we can uh, have mostly a conversation uh, here. It's good to be back. I flew here from uh, Iowa, where I had a, uh, a wonderful uh, visit. Um, so, you know, from Otumwa, Oskaloosa, and Kiyosakwa to San Francisco is, uh, a, great, is a great thing. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of words about the book. Um, you know, the campaign has become, in some ways, particularly on the Republican side, uh, to some a carnival, to some a comedy hour, to some a reality show. And actually, for many Republicans themselves, a kind of horror show that Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, the two leading candidates uh, in Monday's Iowa caucuses, are actually quietly or publicly despised by many of the uh, party's leaders. Um, the uh, party's so-called establishment has been hapless so far uh, in trying to uh, bring us down. And um, even in the closing days of those Iowa caucuses, um, it was almost like high school hijinks when uh, the issue was Donald Trump's refusal to participate in the Fox debate because he didn't like the, uh, one of the debate moderators. Um, and, um, you know, and that was a debate sponsored by Fox News, which is a kind of sacred network uh, within uh, the Republican Party. Um, <clears throat> now, Democrats can be forgiven uh, for being gleeful about all this. It does seem that the Republicans, uh, at times, extremism and obstruction uh, through the Obama years, uh, that all that is catching up with it. And we can talk about that more in the Q&A. But I don't want to spoil the fun, but I do want to argue, and it's one of the reasons I wrote this book as a liberal, uh, is that I think the crisis in conservatism is actually a problem for all of us, uh, regardless of our uh, ideology. Um, the United States needs a responsible conservative movement, sometimes to criticize the grand plans we progressives can offer, uh, to remind us that traditional institutions often need to be reformed, sometimes need to be overturned, 
uh, but they should not be overturned lightly. Um, and we need the old conservative habit of reminding us that uh, politics uh, cannot remold human nature. Um, at its best, uh, as uh, the writers Philip Wallach and Justice Myers have argued, conservative, uh, conservatism is a disposition that has the most to offer societies that have much worth conserving. And even those of us who are very critical of our nation's injustices and inequalities can agree that the United States is such a society. Um, the task of conservatives, they wrote, is to offer incremental adaptation as an alternative to radical change. Um, the trouble is that large parts of the American right are no longer interested in incremental uh, adaptation. They are no longer interested in compromise. Uh, and in a two-party system that frequently divides a government with separated powers, um, this produces exactly the sort of dysfunction that we've seen in recent years uh, and that voters are very angry about. Um, and the conservative movement is also uh, disappointed working class Republicans who are indignant that their loyalties in election after election uh, have brought them no material benefits and few uh, satisfactions of any kind. Um, the first sentence of my book is, the history of contemporary American conservatism is a story of disappointment and betrayal. Uh, and I talk about a history that in which this city, by the way, played a very important role with the 1964 uh, Republican convention at the old Cow Palace here, um, where I argue that ever since um, Barry Goldwater's nomination, um, conservative politicians have had to make a series of promises to their supporters that they couldn't possibly keep. Uh, and election after election, administration after administration, these promises uh, weren't kept. Uh, and it has produced an increasing level of anger and radicalization uh, on the part of many people in the party. Uh, it's also, the, the, uh, since Goldwater, uh, the party has lost or driven out all of its liberal voices uh, and many, if not most, of its, uh, most of its uh, moderate voices. Um, uh, I quote Eric Erickson, a, a very conservative blogger, who said the Republican Party created Do Donald Trump because they made a lot of promises to their base and never kept them. Uh, and I think that's true. Uh, they promised to reduce the size of government. Um, the fact is, Americans may be critical of government in the abstract, but they like quite a lot of things uh, from government. Uh, it is fascinating that many, many, many members of the Tea Party uh, who just happen to be, on the whole, at or close to the age of 65, uh, are opposed to big government, but do not want Medicare or Social Security uh, to be taken away. They describe these as earned benefits, um, but this is a very big part of government. Uh, most of the Republican presidential candidates, now that uh, Rand Paul has dropped out, want to uh, increase the defense budget. That, too, is part of government. Um, but you can go down the list, all the things that conservatives regularly attack, whether it's government uh, uh, consumer protections, government environmental protections, government labor protections. Americans may say we don't like big government, or some Americans might, but they rather like to be protected against shoddy goods. They rather like their air and water uh, to be clean. Uh, they rather like uh, certain standards uh, in their uh, workplaces. 
Um, you know, and then the other two big changes that conservatives kept being promised is somehow the cultural changes uh, that we've had in the country since the 1960s, the rights revolutions for African Americans, for women, uh, now for gays and lesbians. Um, uh, well, those can't be rolled back either, again, because vast majorities of Americans uh, support the progress we have made. And so we have uh, where we are now. Um, Goldwater is important because uh, his campaign really began the process of change in the Republican Party. Um, in that, in one of in his famous acceptance speech at the Cow Palace here, um, Goldwater said, uh, "Extremism uh, in defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in pursuit of justice uh, is uh, no virtue." Uh, as Sarah Palin might say, how's that war on moderation going? Uh, and that war on moderation is actually going pretty well. Um, now, we remember Goldwater as this very warm and avuncular guy, and he was a good human being. He was true to himself. And later in life, he had real doubts about some of the directions his own movement has, had taken. He, in particular, uh, had doubts about uh, the uh, religious right. But if you go back, look at his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, um, it reads like a Tea Party book. Just drop out the part of the Soviet Union that's uh, dated, uh, and you will see a whole series of ideas about smaller government, uh, you know, getting rid of the TVA, questioning Social Security, Medicare, um, that uh, Tea Partiers are uh, very proud of. And, um, and so it began. I'll, I'll just make two other points, and then I'll stop so we can do the Q&A. Um, the first is the change in the party since uh, then. Um, the so-called Republican establishment kind of wants to stop Trump and Cruz, uh, and they're looking around, um, and they're saying, well, where are the moderate voters who might sort of stop this? Well, the moderate voters uh, started to disappear from the Republican Party. First, there was the purge of the liberals. The first race, again, was out here in California, your former liberal Republican Senator Tom Kuchel, uh, back in 1968, uh, defeated by a very conservative guy called Max Rafferty, who was a superintendent of public instruction. Uh, and it went on and on that Jacob Javits lost, Clifford Case lost, uh, 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 Ed Brooke was defeated by a Democrat, but the, the liberals were gone. But also over time, the moderates were thrown out gradually, either by primaries or by Democrats in districts that used to elect them, but didn't want to re-elect them because they didn't want to support a Republican majority in Congress that was well to the right of these moderate uh, Republicans in the district I live in in Maryland. That we, there was a very progressive Republican called Connie Morella, uh, who was finally defeated by Chris Van Hollen because people in that district really loved her, uh, but they just didn't want to empower a Gingrich, uh, a, a, you know, a Congress under Gingrich and the leaders who uh, followed. Um, but the other thing that happened is within the electorate itself, moderates started leaving. Uh, Goldwater, one of the other changes Goldwater inaugurated was the southernization of the Republican uh, Party. Uh, that Goldwater opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, as a result, African Americans, who had been historically a loyal part of the Republican Party, Roosevelt converted a lot of African Americans into Democrats, but in 1960, Richard Nixon got a third of the African American vote against Kennedy, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower got half of the uh, Republican, uh, of the African American vote. So they left. White Southerners who supported segregation or were opposed to federal action on uh, civil rights um, uh, sort of joined the party, and so slowly, uh, in places like this and in suburban areas, uh, in places like Contra Costa County and uh, um, other places to the north here, the ring counties around Philadelphia, 
Uh, moderate Republicans just started to leave uh, because this wasn't the party uh, that they uh, uh, that they identified with. Uh, and so now we are at this pass. Um, my book is a historical book. We can so we can talk about anything over the last 50 years that you uh, feel like talking about. I talk about I have chapters talking about Reagan and Nixon and uh, both Bush presidencies and President Obama leading up uh, to now. My timing of the publication was great because I could include Donald Trump. Uh, and as you know, anything these days that has hashtag Trump in it is good uh, for journalists and hopefully for the sales of books. Uh, I apologize for taking advantage of. I actually wrote a column uh, uh, at the beginning of the year uh, offering free advice to Republican candidates. And I began the column by saying uh, free advice is worth about what you pay for it. We'll be back with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Uh, but I went down the list, and I gave some real advice to each of them, and I finally got to Trump. Uh, and I said uh, that, um, you know, I don't have any advice for Trump, and if I did have any, he wouldn't listen. Uh, so instead, I should thank uh, Mr. Trump uh, for his candidacy, because I have a book coming out called Why the Right Went Wrong. And thanks to him, uh, there is an unusual amount of interest in this question. So just this once, thank you, Donald Trump. Uh, and I will leave it there, and then we can talk some more. Thank you. Uh, the book is so great, and I know we're, uh, you guys are such a smart audience. I know uh, the, the questions are going to be excellent, but everybody's going to learn something from this book, no matter how much you think you know about politics. And you go, oh, I remember the Clinton years. I got this. No, no, there's something in here for you. See, I was really absolutely right it. about the moderator. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, just as an initial question, you know, we're Californians here. I, I think it's always good to, to talk about us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so in the book, That's how Donald Trump feels about yeah, himself. I know. We're, you know? Yeah. We're, we're, we're down with that. We understand that. Uh, but in Cal, you do you write a lot about um, Goldwater, of course, from Arizona, and but also about Reagan and Nixon. And um, is there something in the water out west that that is producing these? You know, we've got these transformational political figures that seem to be coming from a, a particular part of the country. Is there a, is there something out here we should know? Well, I, I mean. California um, is, has often been ahead of the country in various trends, and there are kind of two ways in which I think we can talk about California in reference to the book. One is uh, Ronald Reagan, and one of the things, uh, some people knew this, but not everybody knew this, and I thought it was important to be straight about it in the book. I actually grew up in a conservative family, uh, and um, I still, I, and I talk in the book about um, how my dad and I were watching television when I was 12 years old, 
during the 64 election. And like all conservatives in the country, and I grew up in a kind of working class, democratic, Catholic town, which in, in the end shaped what I came to believe. And I'd be happy to explain how I became a liberal as a teenager. And my late dad, I mentioned this last night to the other Commonwealth Club, my late dad loved to argue about politics. He thought it was good for his kids to argue with him. Uh, and so he even at my request gave me a subscription to the uh, New Republic so I could strengthen my side of the argument. Uh, <laughs> that's a great dad. And so I once wrote a column about him if anybody wants to uh, look it up. Um, but you know, this was before I started around 13 when I was started to argue with him. But um, you know, we were watching and this guy, Ronald Reagan, this actor, uh, there was a half hour ad bought uh, by the money people in the uh, Goldwater campaign who said, we want to put this guy Reagan up. And we knew sitting there watching that the conservative movement had found its new hero. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was his famous speech, A Time for Choosing, some of you may uh, remember. Um, and it really sort of, it, it was, it created his career. And, and it's fascinating that uh, Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan have one very important thing in common, which is one speech, one very important speech made the careers of both of these men. And in the book, I sort of compare and contrast these two very important uh, uh, speeches. Um, and so what you had going in California when Reagan started running in uh, 1966 was the beginning of a backlash against great society liberalism. You also, by the way, had an anti-civil rights backlash. You, there was a backlash against open, an open housing law uh, that was passed here. Um, there was a backlash against students at Berkeley and the radical movement, uh, or the they both real and perceived, uh, at Berkeley. And so, um, you know, Reagan had a lot of material to work with, uh, despite the fact that Jerry Brown had been, uh, Jerry Brown, that Pat Brown had been an exceptionally successful governor in terms of really building the infrastructure, long-term economic success of California. Reagan clobbered him by, as I recall, a million uh, votes. And so that was California ahead of the curve uh, for what was to come. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, jump forward to Prop 187, which many of you uh, remember, which was about denying uh, uh, benefits to uh, immigrants here in the country illegally. Mm -hmm. And um, it created an extraordinary backlash among Latino voters in California. And California went from being a fairly Republican state, Nixon carried it against Kennedy very narrowly, Ronald Reagan obviously carried it, um, to being one of the most democratic states in the union. And one of the people I quote at some length in the book is Jim Brulte, the Republican uh, chair mm -hmm. out here in California, who said he's very critical of the National Party on these issues. And he said, if the Republicans don't learn from what happened to Republicans in California, where we alienated Latinos, we alienated Asian Americans, and he's working very hard to get, try to start to get that vote back. Um, the nation, the rest of the nation is going to look like California uh, demographically in 20, 25 years. Um, if the National Party isn't careful, they're going to put themselves where the Republican Party is in California now. So I think it, and there, are, there are other examples. I mean, Richard Nixon got his start in California. So you are a fascinating state, and you are the only state in history, I think, where one man is both the oldest, correct me if I'm wrong, and both the, the oldest and the youngest governor. I think... <laughs> I, I think <laughs> We love him. I, I think that's kind of cool. We love I, our Jerry I just Brown. Gotta say, <laughs> well, I, I, there's I, hope for us all. You yeah. know? <laughs> well, you mentioned that you grew up in, with a Republican dad, and that you might have felt a. My mom know, was too, a, by a the way. And she of converted love for, for Reagan. <laughs> uh, but I do have an audience question: Were you ever a Republican? 
I never registered Republican. No, I was a liberal. I was the most boring thing you could be as a teenager. I was a liberal Republican. <laughs> a liberal uh, Repu- that with I, a new Republican. I passed on. I passed through a liberal Republican period. I, I, sort of two things converted me, just since it yeah. might be in people's heads. One, uh, when I was about 13, I got very excited by the Great Society, and I looked and saw all these things that Congress was doing. And I asked the question, what are we, meaning conservatives, meaning Republicans, doing to solve some of these national problems? And, um, you know, and that's why I passed through liberal Republicans, because as I point out in the book, there was some exciting work being done in the moderate wing of the Republican Party to try. And there were some good ideas that came out of that, including revenue sharing, uh, the end of the draft. So there were there was some interesting ferment. Um, and then the other thing is for a religion class, we had to pick a book uh, to read uh, and review or write about a book report on. And I picked Martin Luther King's uh, book, uh, Strength to Love, which is a wonderful collection of his sermons. I still have this little book. I think it cost me 45 cents uh, at the time. Um, and it really, you know, I'm Catholic, and it really meant a lot to think about what uh, obligations fell upon Christians when it came to racial and social justice. Mm-hmm. So those were sort of two events I still remember. And then uh, I'm, selling, I'm gonna sell other people's books here today. I hope I sell my own, but um, <laughs> great book I read in the history, William Luchtenberg's book on Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, the best one volume history of the New Deal. Uh, and that all was very exciting to me. So that's where I started converting. And then of course, the war in Vietnam and the like. And uh, so by the time I came of age to register to vote, I uh, was a Democrat. There you go. No Republican skeletons uh, in the closet. There, um, I, you 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 talk in the book about about and there have been there's been lots of discussion about this fact that um, that Republicans have been accused even by other Republicans of sort of you know in the South we say you know you you let in your mouth. Uh, write a check that your butt can't cash. You know, like there's this, there's a saying. I, but you know, over promising. I like that. <laughs> promising, you, you can have that. Somebody tweet that. <laughs> TM, you owe me $5 yeah. if you do that. Uh, so no, but it, there is this notion that there's this over promising that just results in this continuous disappointment. Why has that not happened on the left? Or has it happened on the left in a way that is just, it's just not Obviously, your book is about the right, so um, you didn't address it. But but I'm wondering why there seems to be there seem to be things happening on the right that are not as visible on the left. I'll say that. No, I, I think that's true. And and one of the arguments that I think is very important that we've been having for five or ten years now is whether the polarization in our country is symmetric or asymmetric. And here I'll sell another book. My friends Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein wrote a very important book called "It's Even Worse Than It Looks," where they were very oh, yeah. insistent on. Uh, um, it's a, it is a great title. Uh, they were very insistent on the asymmetric quality of the polarization. And in my book, I cite a couple of numbers from Pew Research Center polls. One is that if you look at the makeup of, uh, these are answers of Republicans and Democrats in polls. So this is not somebody superimposing a structure on something. Um, if you ask Democrats whether they are liberal, moderate, or conservative, uh, only about 35 to 40 percent of Democrats call themselves liberal. The rest call themselves either moderate or about 20 percent of Democrats still call themselves uh, conservative. Uh, if you look at Republicans, two thirds of Republicans call themselves uh, conservative. The, no- the moderate numbers um, have gone down and down and down. And why over, do you think that is? Uh, the, because um, there, are, there are several reasons. One, I think the signals the Republican Party has sent about its movement to the right 
are much stronger than any signals the Democrats sent the other way around. I mean, look at Bill Clinton's presidency. Uh, you know, Bill, the signal of Clintonism is that this is a moderate form of uh, progressivism. And look at Barack Obama's health care plan, which I think is actually, even though it's, it's become this uh, whipping um, Ob- object to be sort of destroyed by the Republican Party. This is a very moderate health plan. It is very much uh, the ideas out of the Heritage Foundation, Mitt Romney's plan in Massachusetts, uh, a bill introduced by Bob Dole and, and John Chafee back in the 90s as an alternative uh, to uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton's proposal. Um, and so I think that is, uh, that is part of it. And um, I think the for some uh, certain kinds of Republicans, the strong social conservatism of the Republican Party, even for Republicans who are still fiscally conservative, and especially younger Republicans, um, this has also sort of been a push out. The other polling number, ask uh, people in both parties, in all parties, uh, you prefer a politician who compromises to get things done or sticks to principle. Roughly six in 10 Democrats want compromisers. Only about a third of Republicans want compromise. These are two very different parties right now. Um, I want to read a little passage of something that you wrote that just really resonated um, with me in terms of what's happening here in 2016. Um, And forgive me, this is a, a couple sentences here. You say Republicans called moderates these days are, with very few exceptions, quite conservative. Moderate only in relation to their Tea Party colleagues in their skepticism of extreme tactics, such as government shutdowns. This clash between the Tea Party and establishment forces should not be mistaken for a fight between conservatism and moderation. And in reading that, I just want to read that last sentence one more time. The clash between the Tea Party and establishment forces should not be mistaken for a fight between conservatism and moderation. And in reading that, I thought about Marco Rubio and about how he's now being touted as establishment candidate. And I think some people hear that and think, oh, well, that means he's a little to the left of Cruz and Trump. But but he ran as a Tea Party candidate in Florida, and now he's this establishment candidate. Are we having trouble distinguishing between these two things, moderate and establishment right now? The trouble with a good moderator is she read that, and then she recited the answer that I was going to give you, which oh. was um, the, uh, because I, 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 as you read that, I thought Marco Rubio, because I think you're exactly... Right, that Rubio was proudly elected as a Tea Party candidate. Indeed, there's a kind of double discourse going on with uh, Rubio, where two conservative audiences, he always points out that the establishment told me not to run as a Tea Party candidate. I ran against Charlie Crist, who was a moderate who later became a Democrat. Um, and his positions are you know, very, very conservative. It's only in relation to Cruz in one way and Trump in another way that he looks at all uh, moderate and even some of the moderate positions he took, as in supporting a bill uh, to reform immigration, he kind of backed away from and overthrew his whole position when it became uh, inconvenient. I think that is going to be one of his challenges uh, going forward. We'll be back with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. 
Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Um, one of the things I did for this book that was a lot of fun is I talked to a lot of conservatives. I mean, I've been around uh, D.C. for a long time and actually have a lot of conservative friends. And it is one of the good things about um, uh, there, there aren't that many good things about growing old. But one of them is that I was around before we all hated each other with that kind of passion. Uh-huh. And so I was able to talk to uh, uh, a lot of folks and I cited a lot of conservatives uh, and a piece that I found incredibly enlightening was by, in National Review, uh, by uh, two, two writers I really respect, even though I disagree with them, um, Rich Lowry and Ramesh Panuru, uh, where they wrote a very interesting article in, 19, uh, in 2014 called Establishment Tea. And essentially what they argued, um, I'm putting it a bit more directly perhaps than they did, is large parts of the establishment went over philosophically to the Tea Party side in order to prevent even more extreme Tea Party candidates uh, from getting nominations. So that the establishment in the party, uh, again, I'm not even sure what that is anymore, took a bunch of steps to the right essentially to preserve uh, their power. And I think in the whole saga of John Boehner, uh, you s- really saw that happening where he knew he didn't fully control that caucus. And he was worried that if he took any steps like bringing an immigration bill uh, to the floor um, or like passing a budget without having to be dragged there publicly, mm-hmm. um, he'd be overthrown by the, the right of his conference. And eventually he just decided uh, to pack it in because he didn't want to govern like this anymore. Well, you know, it's difficult for anyone to govern to, to, to govern right. at this point. You, you quoted uh, George W. Bush, who would say, no, I'm a, I'm a uniter, not a divider, because dividers can't govern. And I wonder if anyone can. I mean, and then, you know, and then if then, you know, can a divider govern? Maybe not. But certainly uniters like President Obama or people attempting to and George W. Bush in his first uh, at least in this first part of his administration tried to. Um, what kind of person could could govern at this point in light of what we've what we know from reading his book um i think we may need divine intervention uh (laughs) the um um the um i am one of those people by the way who believes strongly that we should not simply believe that religion lives on the right side of politics but that's for another (laughs) that was another book and for another uh conversation um the uh, i think it is more a structural problem uh and that the most remarkable leadership could come along and would have trouble uh, in this circumstance. Now, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I wrote this book about conservatism precisely because I think it is the nature of the current right that makes governing so difficult. The subtitle of the introduction is why reforming the country requires transforming uh, the right. Um, because you know, one of the things that has bothered me for many years about conservative rhetoric is its attitude toward government. Um, first of all, government becomes an alien creature. 
uh, as if we were almost living in a monarchy where the government has nothing to do with us. Well, well, it is us. We may not always like it. We may get mad at it, uh, but we elect it. It's still in our power to change it. Um, secondly, uh, as I said in my introductory remarks, we rely on government for a lot of things. Uh, and we count on government for a lot of things. And the thing we've really forgotten about is the um, creative power of government investment uh, and that there is such a thing as government investment. And uh, look around at this state and the extraordinary institutions of higher education, public higher education that have been built in California. He's going to Berkeley yeah. after he leaves here. I, I am. Sorry. It's true. Um, <laughs> but I'm not pandering at Berkeley. I, I am uh, the, uh, although you gave me a good idea. Um, the, you know, and you can look at what public resources did to help make the California private economy such a vibrant thing. And so one of the heroes in my book is Dwight Eisenhower, uh, where I argue that Eisenhower offered uh, a different kind of conservatism, but a real kind of conservatism. Eisenhower was pro-business. He was a very fiscally prudent president. Uh, he was also prudent, by the way, on defense budgets, uh, as well as other parts of the budget. But he also believed that um, certain of the New Deal reforms uh, were part of uh, American life. Uh, and that um, uh, that's, and, and that they couldn't be overthrown. Uh, and what are the two big investment programs Ike uh, offered? He offered the Interstate Highway System, which is, in, I think, is the largest public works program in American history. Um, and he offered the Federal Student Loan Program, which helped millions of people, including me, I suspect a lot of other people in this room, uh, go to college. So he was somebody who had conservative instincts, saw conservatism as a form of balance, and I think we need to go back to that kind of Burkean, uh, Edmund Burke-style conservatism. Now, liberals throw a Burke at the existing conservatives all the time, and I'm, so I'm joining in a long tradition, <laughs> and I recognize that. But I still think Burke does have a lot, of, uh, a lot to teach. Burke preached against rage and frenzy uh, in politics. And what we're seeing on the right uh, is an awful lot of rage and frenzy. Do you, and do you think that like John Kasich would be the sort of modern day Eisenhower Kasich if he had an is, equivalent? Uh, sort of, you know, we say we, we need to get back to Eisenhower Republicanism. Like who embodies that? I was thinking Kasich, but it says no, no, some no, other Kasich among the Republicans this time, even though I think he's well to the right of Eisenhower Republicanism, he did support um, the expansion, the Medicaid expansion mm -hmm. in Ohio, which makes him unpopular with many. He had to fight his own party uh, to do that. He actually was very interesting when he, he had a religious conversion, Kasich, after his uh, parents died in a car crash. Um, and he's very reflective about it. And, but he doesn't, talk, he doesn't talk about it that much publicly. But at the time, uh, he said, when I die, uh, St. Peter is not going to ask me us if we balance the budget. He's going to ask me what we did to the least of these. It's really interesting and exciting to hear a Republican say something like that, even though I think he is more uh, conservative than Ike uh, was. Um, I just want to sneak in one more Burke quote, then I promise no more Burke. Um, <laughs> Burke talked about, quotes, a disposition to preserve and an ability to improve. That seems like a really good way to be a conservative. Uh, it's, not a bad, I, it's not bad advice to anybody, but it's a pretty good way to be a conservative. It's sort of preserve the things that we really should preserve as a society, but recognize that all societies are in need of improvement. Uh, and indeed, to be good stewards of a society and of a tradition, you have to be open to improvement. And so I think you need 
more of that in contemporary conservatism than we're getting now. Well, you, you do write a lot about Goldwater sort of versus Eisenhower in the book. And, you know, in looking at the today's sort of a candidate selection, I was thinking Ted Cruz looks a lot very Goldwater-ish, to right. create a word, um, because he he ran on this sort of idea of like what what we need to do is like get even more <laughs> conservative, uh, and that's how we're going to win elections because these com- compromise candidates aren't doing it. And that's that sounds like very uh, that sounds like something Barry Goldwater would say. And now we see Ted Cruz sort of taking the same tack. Do you do you do you feel like he's our the modern day? <laughs> Goldwater, is he the scariest one in the race for you? He is like Goldwater, <laughs> although Goldwater, I think, was somewhat better liked in Congress than uh, Ted, <laughs> Ted Cruz appears to be. Uh, but, uh, but no, it's, it's almost part of the contemporary conservative creation story that we lose elections, conservatives say, because we weren't conservative enough. Uh, and they gave a big test to that in the Goldwater case, and it collapsed. I talk a lot about how the Tea Party really started forming under uh, George W. Bush, even though it didn't go, it wasn't, it didn't yet have a name, uh, where uh, conservatives chose to explain the failures of the Bush presidency, not in terms of Iraq, not in terms of his economic policies, which given what happened to our economy, didn't work out so well, but rather that George W. Bush was just a big government Republican. And it was very convenient for conservatives to explain it that way uh, because it required not only no um, reconsideration of the direction they had taken, but it also suggested we just need to move farther right. And there is part of me that believes that um, if Ted Cruz were nominated and lost the election, Uh, It could actually be a very constructive moment because if Cruz ran and lost, no one could say uh, that Cruz was not an authentic representative (laughs) of the right wing, uh, you know, the right end of the Republican Party's view. Uh, That might give some heart to some Republicans and conservatives to say, all right, we need a more fundamental reappraisal. Uh, In my book, I talk about conservatives who tried to do some of this, the compassionate conservatives, Uh, under uh, President Bush and now the reform uh, conservatives whom I refer to as reformicons. Um, And uh, they have something to say and and some parts of the compassionate conservative movement, Kasich is kind of like that, I have respect for, but they haven't been willing to challenge the uh, movement sort of to the far right uh, sharply enough, in my view. Now, my reformer- Well, the ones who have got banished, right? Right, I well, mean- <laughs> like, yeah, Frum gets, uh, is, gets beaten up all the time. He has gone mm-hmm. fairly far. My friend David Brooks, whom I, as some of you know, do a lot of radio with, has been more and more aggressive as the Trump uh, specter has gotten bigger. Uh, but I, uh, now my, my ReformerCon friends tell me I'm not going to be satisfied until they're liberals and social democrats. And maybe that's true. Uh, I would like them all to convert to my view. But in fact, that's not what I'm looking for. But I am, uh, that's not what I expect of them. But I do want them to be willing to challenge a bit more fundamentally the direction that conservatism is taken. But in some cases, um, you know, some of these folks are smart people who uh, in their bones know there is something wrong here. And I think at, over time, I'm, you know, I'm prayerful again, if I may invoke the Almighty, uh, that they will find their way toward a tougher critique of where the right is now. Okay. 
Um, just one moment for the folks listening at home. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. And our guest today is Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion Jr., who is discussing the bizarre political climate in the United States. <laughs> we have a number of questions from the audience about moderate Republicans. One person wants to know where did they go? Another person wants to know where do I go <laughs> in terms of like if you are a current modern day Republican, what do you do historically? Where have they gone? Have they transformed the Democratic Party? Do they just sort of, you know, stay home on election day. What do you? What's your estimation of of where those folks went after the the the, the numbers shrank? Well, I have a um, a, a, um, a, cha- a couple of chapters on the Clinton administration, and there is a great moment when Bill Clinton, in frustration, realizing that his main achievement might be balancing the budget says, we are just a bunch of Eisenhower Republicans, uh, said Bill Clinton. And in many ways, you know, and he said, then he said, at least we'll give them, meaning working class Democrats, health care. And of course, that didn't work out uh, in the Clinton uh, in the Clinton years. And um, what you saw in the 90s is a lot of moderate Republicans, uh, such as uh, some of these questioners, really started voting uh, Democratic, as I mentioned uh, in in the introduction where you, you saw that um, you know, around cities like Boston, Philadelphia, New York, uh, all these suburban, Chicago out here in the West Coast, all these suburban areas where moderate Republicans had done very well. Moderate Republicanism was kind of what that's about. My county, Montgomery County, Maryland, was a classic kind of moderate Republican uh, readout. Um, most of those folks have become, um, you know, have become Democrats or uh, independents. In the Republican Party, um, you know, when you look at um, um, there, there are some Republicans I mentioned uh, toward the end of the in my acknowledgments, people I talked to for years, people like Jim Leach uh, from Iowa, who was actually a quite progressive Republican who ended up in the Obama administration. People like Senator Mac Mathias from Maryland, whose last act, really loyal from a Republican family going back to Lincoln. Uh, and uh, Mac Mathias, is one of his last political act before he died was to endorse Barack Obama uh, in 2008. You had converts wow. like John Lindsay, the mayor of New York, uh, who became a Democrat. And there were a list of moderate Republicans who left. Um, it's just not easy being a moderate Republican until you are, unless you are from the state of Maine. We'll be back with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Uh, you know, if you look at, uh, and even there, it's not as easy as it used to be. You know, if you look at Susan Collins, um, you know, and Olympia Snow actually left the Senate. It was even, she was, uh, you know, I think potentially worried about a primary uh, challenge. In my state of Massachusetts, there are still some moderate Republican tendencies um, but I think it's very hard to be a moderate Republican uh, right now because either you lose a primary inside the Republican Party or 
um, you, um, uh, you get beaten by Democrats who just don't trust the Republican Party in the way they used to be able to trust moderate uh, Republicans. On the other hand, I'm telling these fo you folks who ask these questions a very negative story. I actually do want you desperately to get active in the party and try to change it. Uh, because I think, um, you know, I, I think that the country ran better when there were, um, you know, there was a larger component of the Republican Party that was moderate and could actually work with Democrats on some important things. You wouldn't have passed civil rights laws, with, for example, without the Republican Party. And, uh, the, and, and there are a lot of other things that were passed with some support uh, across, across party lines. Well, we in California have our Citizens Redistricting Commission, which we're very proud of, which <laughs> cuts politicians completely out of the process of gerrymandering or uh, creating congressional districts, which, uh, which we love. Uh, Arizona has something similar, and uh, you know. No, and, and that's important. One of the things I do talk about in the book is how gerrymanders have uh, helped um, Republicans ensconce themselves in the House. Now, in fairness, this was a state that uh, is the home of Phil Burton, another great Democrat from this area, uh, who, drew, who drew the most artistically interesting congressional districts uh, uh, in history. So I'm not saying gerrymandering is a unique Republican issue. However, because they had so much power in so many states after the 2010 elections, uh, in swing states, um, if you look at states such as Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, uh, the votes for Congress and the vote, the actual representation are very out, are very out of whack. Now, some of that is because Democrats are concentrated in big cities. They win city districts by a big margin. So they'd have a problem without the gerrymander, but the gerrymander makes it much worse. So yeah, I, I think as a nation, um, we would be much better to let the um, uh, voters pick the members of Congress rather than the members of Congress pick their voters, which is what happens a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, now, on, on the issue of sort of moderate Republicans maybe becoming Democrats, we now, of course, have Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton. Um, it's interesting, you write in the book um, about... Wait, where's... Okay, you write uh, the Hillary Clinton... This is Hillary Clinton back in 2008 talking about Barack Obama. She says, I could stand up here and say, let's just get everybody together. Let's get unified. The sky will open. The light will come down. Celestial choirs will be singing. And everyone will know that we should do the right thing and the world will be perfect. Maybe I've just lived a little long, but I have no illusions about how hard this will be. You are not going to wave a magic wand. Now, it sounds very similar to her, her, her set of pragmatism that she's espousing right now as she runs against Bernie Sanders. What is your take on that race? And also, do you think that the influx maybe of moderate Republicans to the Democratic Party has fed into what we now see with sort of people on the progressives versus other sort of more establishment party Democrats? The, if you have never seen that Hillary Clinton uh, clip, it's really worth seeing because she says it with her voice dripping with sarcasm. And it's a really, it's a wonderful clip. And, and in the book I have, a chapter called Dreams of Celestial Choirs, uh, <laughs> and the subtitle is Barack Obama Hopes, But the GOP Doesn't Change. Uh, and I, I think that, I, I quoted that because I, I always thought it was a telling critique of President Obama's view. I'm, as you know, if you read my column, I am broadly sympathetic uh, to President Obama. I have a lot of respect uh, for him. But I, in, in the book, I reflect that respect, but I also am critical of the a president early on in particular 
uh, for actually believing that he could convert Republicans uh, to a more reasonable view. I think he hung on to uh, this view longer than he should have, and I think he, I'm, I'm, I have reason to believe that he believes that now himself, and you can see the adjustments he has made um, since that Nancy Pelosi story is a telling example of you know, the alternative view. Um, and so I think Hillary was onto something uh, when she said that back in 2008, and it's something I think Obama has come to himself. Uh, just a, an anecdote, um, I remember, if you remember that um, uh, Senator Max Baucus was trying desperately to get Senator Chuck Grassley to support some kind of health care bill, and I called a friend who was working very hard in the pro-healthcare reform camp, and I said, what are you up to? And she said, oh, we are arranging an intervention to try to free Senator Baucus from uh, his abusive relationship with Senator Grassley. <laughs> you know, that was, uh, that was sort of the spirit of the moment. Um, the, um, uh, but um, I, I think now the debate between, I, I, for those of you who want to look it up, I have a column, my column in today's Washington Post is on this theme where I think most Democrats partly agree with Hillary and partly agree with Bernie on the subject of change. And a lot of Democrats are torn about this because on the one hand, I think they are inclined in majority to agree with Clinton that gradual change um, is likely to work better, that it will be more practical to uh, expand and fix Obamacare than it would be to try to go all the way right now to a single payer plan. And it might be more practical to try to get a public option or a buy-in to Medicare uh, for people under a certain age uh, t rather than go straight to single payer. And you can go down, you know, she wants to sort of strengthen regulation of the banks rather than break them up. Mm -hmm. uh, she wants a gradual steps toward um, uh, full uh, universal coverage and um, you know, she wants to ex vastly expand help for people to go to college without having free college, whereas Bernie is on the other side of those. I think on the issue side, a lot of people on, in the Democratic Party are sympathetic to her argument. Um, on the other side, I think where Bernie has a critique that a lot of Democrats resonate to is, A, of the political money system, particularly uh, since the Citizens United uh, decision and the power of, uh, I quote David Frum in the book, who refers to the radical rich, and he means the radical rich on the right, on his mm -hmm. own side, and the influence they have. I think people identify with that. I think they identify with Sanders' view that the um, progressives need to organize and mobilize better than they have been. I mean, Democrats used to have, for example, the labor movement. Uh, and while there are still unions still have strength at the public level and you know, public employee unions, the private sector unions, which were very important, for example, to the Roosevelt um, coalition, have not been there. Nothing has been replicated for that. And Sanders is talking about that. So I think there are a lot of Democrats who are admire Clinton um, and respect what Bernie is doing out there and, and who may agree a bit more with Clinton but are grateful that Bernie is broadening this argument again. At least now, we have a real democratic socialist so that when people call Barack Obama a socialist, <laughs> um, they might say, 
wait, that's a socialist, not <laughs> this guy. I, I've said for years, I've, I, Mike Harrington, some of you may know, uh, the author of The Other America, who was a great American socialist, actually, uh, was somebody I was friendly with, and he was a wonderful man. And I used to tell people in those days when everybody was saying Obama was socialist, I know a lot of socialists. <laughs> They're insulted when Barack Obama is called a socialist. You know? <laughs> well, you know, on the issue of money and politics, actually, it brings me to the next question, an audience question question here. Um, the question is just, what happened to Jeb Bush? I mean, here's a man with lots of money, right? T hundreds of millions of dollars he's raised. And yet, is this the anti-Citizens United argument? Is this the, you know, actually, you can have all the money you want, but if your candidate's not, uh, not catching on, uh, it's just not going to catch on. Um, you know, I, I try to be equal opportunity in the people I quote in the book. So one of the people I quote in the book um, is Laura Ingram, the conservative talk show host, whom I suspect people in the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco don't agree with. Uh, but the, uh, the, what I, the quote I use from Laura is um, that most people don't understand how much hostility to the Bushes there is in the right end of the Republican Party. Uh, and so I think several, uh, first of all, I have to admit I am surprised that he was as, um, well, let me put it as charitably as possible, <laughs> uh, has not been, he has not been as good a candidate as I thought he would be. Not that I thought necessarily he would be an off the charts candidate, but I saw him give a talk down in Florida in 2014 where he was a pretty reasonable kind of optimistic guy. I thought he'd be better than this as a candidate, but I think he had sort of the double burden of the Bush name. One is, it is true that many on the Republican right have come to despise the Bushes and see them as terribly moderate, big government sellouts, and he got implicated in that, even though he is a very, very conservative uh, man, although, and I think this is really to his credit, when he will always be able to say this out of this campaign, his pushing back hard against Trump's Islamophobia um, is something that he did. It's also, by the way, something George W. Bush did right after 9-11. That's something that both of them uh, can be proud of. So the right wing didn't like them. But then I also think there were a lot of non-right-wing Republicans who said, you know, the country really isn't ready for another Bush. Uh, really doesn't want to elect another Bush. And, um, you know, uh, how can you run a campaign uh, against Clintons have been around too long if the identity of the other candidate is Bush? Uh, and so, um, so he had a lot of obstacles that uh, he confronted. Um, I don't think this shows that money doesn't matter, but it does show that money alone uh, can't solve everybody's political problems. And Bush... Unfortunately for him, had a lot of them. And, you know, you, we could say we'll see if he surprises us in New Hampshire, but at least the polls as of this moment don't seem too promising for him. Well, you know, another issue about money and politics is this uh, is the potential run by uh, Michael Bloomberg as a third party candidate. Um, and of course, there's always this this looming fear among some Republicans that Donald Trump would mount a third party run. He, could, he still could uh, and sort of do what Ross Perot did uh, and 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 enable a, a and sort of t take away from the Republican Party, split that vote and enable a Democrat to win. You write a lot about Ross Perot um, in the book, which I'm 
was thrilled to read. I, I brought, the Perot campaign was the first campaign I ever volunteered on. I was, oh, wow. <laughs> I was not old enough to vote. I was very young. I just, you know, but forgive me, but it was fascinating. It was really neat to have this third, this guy who was just like, forget both sides. I want to do it. I'm going to be an independent. And there's something really appealing, whatever you think about that. Somebody who's saying, forget both parties. There's such animosity against both parties. What do you think of uh, the, the potential, the real potential for a third party uh, candidate running, uh, especially one with unlimited funds? Um, the, um, I, the one thing I, I can guarantee that somewhere, somehow, I'll get negative uh, mail from both Mike Bloomberg and Ralph Nader but when I say that I don't think Mike Bloomberg wants to be a centrist Ralph Nader. Uh, and, yeah. you know, that I think that it is unlikely that Bloomberg would run if Clinton uh, were the Democratic nominee. And I'm not sure he'd run if somebody other than Cruiser Trump were the Republican uh, nominee. But I think that when you look at where Bloomberg is most likely to draw votes, uh, it is much more in blue states than red states. His stances on gun control, on social issues. Um, there are just a lot of conservatives who, they, he, they, who could, even moderate conservatives couldn't get to Bloomberg. If the race were, um, uh, uh, if by some chance, Bernie Sanders against Trump or Bernie Sanders against Cruz. I could imagine, you imagine? his being interested. Um, and, <laughs> That's a um, debate the whole world would watch. I can't remember. I, 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 I've, I've used this line because I love it so much. So forgive me if I've said it already, but somebody in The New Yorker wrote that if Bernie ran against Trump, uh, it would be like an argument on the number 41 bus to King's Plaza in Brooklyn. You know, <laughs> it would be an amazing thing. Um, but, um, you know, on, on the one hand, you would have sort of people seeming to be fairly far on each side, although Trump is a funny combination. On the other hand, Bernie would have a field day running against two billionaires. Uh, and so that's the only circumstance in which I can possibly see Bloomberg running. Um, you know, I... I Otherwise, I think he really can't avoid a spoiler role uh, without actually winning the race. Uh, and what about Trump, potentially? Um, you know, if he actually gets beaten, I don't know if he is going to want to sort of continue. It depends on, uh, you know, if he really wanted to set out to defeat the Republicans, if something happens that makes him angry. Um, but you don't have all that much time. You're going to make a decision fairly quickly in order to qualify on all the state ballots or most of the state uh, ballots. So I am, I am sort of skeptical about Trump running, but nothing I ever say about Trump do I have any faith in. And, I, and I'm the one saying it, you know, so who knows what Trump is going to do. Our thanks to E.J. Dion Jr., Washington Post columnist and author of Why the Right Went Wrong. We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the internet. We also wish to remind everyone here that Mr. Dion's new book is for sale, and he'll be signing copies in the Fireside Room following the program. I'll stay as long as you need. <laughs> you got it. You heard it here. I'm Melissa Kane, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. to the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.